0: Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the Europe economics editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about global Britain. June 23rd will mark five years since Britain voted to leave the European Union, whatever that meant, Brexiteers promised a bonfire of red tape, seamless trade with the EU, as well as amazing new trade deals opening up the rest of the world's markets to Britain's exports. In this episode, we wanted an update on how global Britain is going. We're recording this on Wednesday, June 16th. We don't know yet what's happening with Airbus and Boeing for the UK, so so we're not going to talk about that. We are going to chat about the Northern Ireland Protocol and how to think about Britain's brand new trade agreement in principle with Australia. Though again, as we record this, we haven't yet seen the text.
0: We are super lucky to be joined by the team behind All the Good Trade Puns Were Taken. Dmitry Grozovinsky is the Executive Director of the Geneva Trade Platform and everyone's favorite former Australian trade negotiator. Anna Isaac is the UK Trade and Economics Correspondent at Politico Europe and Scoop Hunter Extraordinaire. And Sam Lowe is everyone's favourite tradey think-tanky person at the Centre for European Reform. You can find these three explaining trade every other Monday at 7.30pm British Summertime on Twitch. It's called All the Good Trade Puns Were Taken, in case that wasn't absolutely clear. Okay, I am with team All the Good Trade Puns Were Taken. Hello!
2: Hey. Hello. Hi.
0: Sam is obviously the least thrilled to be here.
2: Most, most thrilled.
0: Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so let's talk about Northern Ireland. Let's give some background for those who can't remember the, the tortuous process that got us up to this point. Sam, why don't we start with you since you're so excited to be here. Why was Northern Ireland such a problem in, in the Brexit negotiations?
2: So the reason Northern Ireland uh, became such a big issue in the negotiations is that the UK chose to leave the EU and then decided to leave the EU's uh, single market and customs territory. And as a result, there was a need to put a border somewhere. So a decision was taken over the course of the UK negotiating its exit from the european union to leave northern ireland in the eu's customs and regulatory territory so as to avoid the need for a land border but in the process creating a customs and regulatory border within the uk between great britain and northern ireland and this has become a source of continued tension uh, and it's something we're still trying to work out to this day
1: so basically northern ireland is in the eu single market for the purposes of trade and goods And that means there's no border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. But there has to be a border somewhere. And so that went in between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. So between Northern Ireland and England, Scotland, and Wales.
0: So, Dimitri, why don't you explain what has been happening at the border as a result of this deal?
3: Sure. So the accommodation to try to make it feel as if Northern Ireland was simultaneously part of the United Kingdom, and yet had as little friction as possible, a little noticeable separation from Ireland, the country, was to put this border in the Irish Sea. But that border is manned by UK officials applying EU rules. So what UK officials have been doing uh, through a negotiation process with the EU initially to work out how this would work, is effectively applying parts of the customs code and some of the checks that are required when you cross any EU border. And the way they've been trying to do that, the accommodation that's been reached, is that, for example, they look at whether a particular shipment is likely to stay within Northern Ireland, or it has risk of penetrating further into the single market, because, of course, there's no barrier. There is no border anymore once you're in Northern Ireland. You can theoretically just keep going all the way to Poland. So they try to assess the risk of whether something will make it into the single market. And if it does, then they treat it according to the rules of the customs code. And if it doesn't, they significantly expedite it. In practice, and perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, the European Union and the United Kingdom have some pretty sharp disagreements about what constitutes an acceptable level of risk to make it into the single market. And so the EU has been pushing for a stricter set of checks than the UK would like. More, I suppose, more sharply, the nature of the trade across that previously non-existent border between the UK, uh, the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland is very different to trade across most other borders. So for example, Northern Ireland supermarkets will stock from warehouses and distribution centres on the other side of this new border. So the kind of shipments that are moving are precisely the kind of shipments that are a nightmare to get across a border trucks with a hundred different kinds of things, fresh food, fresh and chilled meat.
1: Okay, so what's happened here is that various products need to be checked before they they go into Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK, but those checks are difficult. And the UK has decided on its own, and so without consulting with with the EU, to extend the, the transition periods and lift some of the requirements of those checks. And the EU is looking at this and saying, hang on, you can't do this. This is a breach of the deal.
0: So it's, it's important to say here that it's not like the UK wants no checks. They just want traders to face an easier process. Um, can I ask you, Anna, can you dive a bit deeper into one of the specific issues that has come up? There have been a lot of
4: stories about the sausage wars. Uh, what What is going on there? So... Sausage walls can be summed up as some very canny headline writing. Um, The issue arises because when the Northern Ireland Protocol was first put together, it came with some grace periods. And those grace periods were designed um, at three and six month intervals to allow for a short period of time for traders to adapt. Now, if you've been following it closely, you'll have heard from the EU side, Uh, Sefkvich has been saying, we were worried at the time that some of these grace periods wouldn't be long enough. But we agreed to them, so we should stick to them. The UK is now going a bit even further than just saying unilaterally it might have to extend those grace periods. It's suggesting that the very enforcement of them as they stand now, those checks on chilled meats, for example, this being the deadline that we're coming up to at the end of this month, might not really be practical at all. So they're asking for a greater degree of flexibility under the protocol, perhaps even changing it in some regards to try and allow for freer movement of goods. So that's why we've ended up boiled down. You have a chilled meat deadline (laughs) and chilled meat can include sausages. And that's why we have a sausage war um, in a nutshell.
1: Sam, what does this look like from the the EU's perspective? Sure, from the EU perspective. They negotiated
2: a settlement with the UK following the UK's decision to exit the EU and its single market and customs territory and were quite accommodating in respect of Northern Ireland to try and find a solution that worked for Northern Ireland, worked for the peace process, retained Northern Ireland's sort of integral status as a part of the UK, but also contain some controls on goods entering Northern Ireland so as to allow for the land border to be kept open. And they feel they'd be very nice about all of this. They'd be very accommodating. And now they think now they think the UK is just trying to renege on its commitments. They're, they're starting to think that maybe the UK never intended to implement these commitments in the first place, that they were pulling the wool over the EU's eyes, and they're worried that the UK is just going to keep on pushing it and pushing it and pushing it until the integrity of the EU single market is under threat because you just have an open border in Northern Ireland, between Northern Ireland and Great, and, and Great Britain. But... You know, but the thing I should say is that despite all of this frustration, the EU is willing to show flexibility in different areas because all the focus has been on the sausage wars. And and it's because of the reasons out of the sense because it's a great headline. You know, but this is a really specific issue to do with EU restrictions on the import of chilled meat preparations, which is a specific category, not to be confused with meat products, which are different things, you know, and... But it doesn't really matter that much in, in, in reality. It's just it's just symbolic. But on issues such as whether GB authorised medicines are able to be sold in Northern Ireland or not. Actually, the protocol says no, but the EU have shown some flexibility and willing to change EU rules, EU law, to actually ensure that that does continue to be allowed. So you've just got lots of competing dialogues going on. And, and, I, and I do worry that this is going to be the case for a while.
0: And Anna, what what does this look like from the perspective of the British government?
4: Yeah, so I think it's fair to say um, that everyone's come out of the negotiations very bruised and with a level of distrust Um, from the EU side, as we've heard. They're concerned that implementation won't be fulsome and prompt from the UK's perspective. And I think some of this, uh, you know, despite what one might hear in terms of the tit for tat in the press, I think some of this is sincere they believed that because the protocol, fundamental point of the protocol is to uphold the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, and both sides understood that, signed up to that, from the UK's perspective, they'd understood that if there were any friction whatsoever that could present an issue, that ultimately there's the protocol on one level, and above that you have the Good Friday Agreement. So that would always be a sort of a counterweight to any technical issue is is the need to uphold the sort of the the social fabric of of the of the society in northern ireland what's more challenging is trying to work out where that begins and ends in terms of is this this is a technical problem someone doesn't want to solve because they're being choosing to be tricky about it or is there a genuine difficulty with implementing it and I think we can certainly see from a perspective of seeing how implementation of other trade trade deals can 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 take a very long time indeed that there may be some truth in the fact that it's proving very difficult actually to implement this deal and you are creating a new trade border and that is quite challenging. I think the question is whether or not there is and I'm not sure the UK government even knows this with a whole range of issues thinking about this in a much broader way than sausage wars. I'm not sure the UK government is clear on what it needs more time to do and what are some fundamental problems with the shape of the protocol. And remember, this is much, much broader. Think of all of the complexities of a new trade border. And we're starting to see those emerge now. You've had huge problems with things like trade defences in Northern Ireland, because Northern Irish businesses can only appeal to the UK body, the New Trade Remedies Authority, if they have a concern about an influx of imports, for instance. Whereas actually they'll also be having to deal with the EU regime because we know they're in the single markets for goods. So there are lots of asymmetries here that are gonna perpetuate, that are only gonna become clear in time. There are really challenging things to do with quota calculations. And in some instances, Northern Ireland wasn't included in the right quota calculations. And we saw that with steel. HMRC, the UK uh, tax authority had to find a very quick, very imperfect fix for that. So I, th- I think sausage wars is a good way to maybe bring it to people's minds, because it does need to be in their minds. But we do need to understand that this is, this is an early problem in a very, very, very broad, complex area.
1: So this past week, we had the, the G7 meetings in Cornwall in, in the UK when this came up. And there was this question of whether and how the American president, Joe Biden, was, was going to intervene. Dimitri, how do you think this looked from the outside?
3: I think those looking from the outside are seeing an issue that is far more political than it is technical. There are a number of technical solutions that could be brought in to at least de-escalate the scale of the problem. So if you define the challenges as a reasonable protection for the integrity of the single market so that it is not simply a giant gaping hole in the single market outer border. And you just define the other half of the problem as ensuring that goods made in the rest of the UK can flow into Northern Ireland for Northern Ireland use without encountering effectively impassable bureaucracy then there are technical and cooperation solutions that would allow both sides to do that. But they only work if you take the politics, the emotion, all of that stuff out of it and deal with it purely as a what is our objective, what are our constraints, what can we achieve? When you think about the intervention of foreign leaders like Joe Biden into this issue. I think they can be helpful to some extent in that they raise the price of obstinance and they raise the price of simply playing to one's loudest domestic constituents without thinking about other circumstances. So it's useful in in, in that regard to, to a limited extent. Um, but it's also not without danger. A you know, we should cooperate because our trusted friend and the world superpower, the U.S. is asking us to, very quickly can turn into, why is the U.S. butting into our affairs? We should double down so that we are not being bullied by the U.S. So to an extent, there is some scope for foreign leaders to try to be helpful here by leaning into uh pushing for a constructive narrative, pushing the both sides to come back to the table and be pragmatic. But ultimately, these are decisions that have to be made by the Boris Johnson government and by the Commission and the EU 27. And they have to get over these political imperatives both sides have to dig in, act tough and be inflexible. And there's only so much that foreign leaders can do about that.
0: Okay, so this is this is all very, very complicated. But President Biden went in and he intervened. He had these candid discussions with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, stressing the need to preserve the Good Friday Agreement. That's the agreement that essentially set the peace between the different factions in, in Northern Ireland. Um, and no one wants that to break down, uh, which it which it very easily could. Sam, could you tell us about Biden's other more specific intervention?
2: So, so the interesting thing about the Biden administration's intervention on the Northern Ireland Protocol is that he explicitly removed the US as an obstacle to the EU and UK finding solution. By which I mean, up until now, the US has had a slightly contradictory Stance In that it explicitly wants the UK and the EU to find a solution to Northern Ireland to make the protocol work. But in respect of its trade talks with the UK, it was encouraging divergence from EU standards, particularly on food hygiene, so the infamous chlorinated chicken hormone beef and one of the solutions for northern ireland that's on the table at least the eu has put it there is the idea of a veterinary agreement similar to what switzerland has with the eu that would see the uk bound to eu food hygiene rules both domestically and respect of imports but the benefit of this is that it would remove the need for SPS checks on food products entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain. But the downside is it would remove the UK's flexibility to accommodate the US. And what the Biden administration said was, actually, you should prioritise Northern Ireland. And if you do converge with reconverge with EU food standards, that's not going to get in the way of us talking about a trade deal with you, the UK. And this was something that needed to be said. It hasn't ended up helping because the UK has just sort of ignored it and said, well, we just don't like convergence with the EU out of principle. But at least now the US, from its own perspective, is no longer an obstacle to this potential solution um, as it potentially was before.
1: We've learned by now Brexit is never over. So what should we be watching out for over the next few months?
2: Well, I suppose the first deadline is uh, the end of this month where the official grace period that is in place that allows chilled meat preparations to enter Northern Ireland uh, comes to an end and the UK is threatening to extend that grace period unilaterally. Um, if there's no solution agreed before then it probably will do that and it will lead to the Commission uh, continuing with the dispute it already has over a previously extended grace period and potential retribution over time. There, there, there's a, there's a optimistic version of that relatively optimistic in which this all remains within the confines of the withdrawal agreement and its dispute settlement processes and it just sort of it's a lingering dispute that takes some time but doesn't unsettle everything there's a alternative to this which is it just leads the UK's unilateral extension of the grace period leads to escalation, leads to immediate retaliation, leads to member states such as France threatening to cut off UK electricity supplies, and the like. And it all gets out of hand very quickly. And I suppose this is in the context of Northern Ireland itself, where we're fast approaching uh, something called marching season, which is which is quite a politically contentious time.
0: Marching season is when some Protestant groups literally march through the streets, often with music. There can be street fires. There can be violence. Essentially, there are there are deep divisions still within Northern Ireland, and one side is much more upset with the idea of a border with with the rest of the UK than the other. And so, to oversimplify things massively, um, the the Brexit difficulties are, are interacting with these older political divisions in in a bad way. Okay, so. This Brexit thing seems like a bit of a drag. Britain's relationship with the EU not going so well. So let's talk about another of the UK's trading partners because of course there was this big opportunity of Brexit where Britain would be able to agree some glorious new trade agreements with other places, for example, with Australia. Dimitri, you are Australian. Well done. It must have been you that got it over the line, right?
3: Uh, my absence was the key to really getting this across the line.
0: Excellent. Okay. Okay. So so, what do we actually know about this deal so far? Give us the, the glass half full take. What are the good things in this?
3: So this deal effectively eliminates all tariffs and quotas. It does include some quotas and safeguards over a number of years on Australian agriculture, but they are so large as to effectively represent a complete elimination of tariffs basically from day one by the two sides. We know that so far. Beyond that, we actually know very, very little. Perhaps we just can't hear it over the sounds of celebration coming from Canberra, but so far we know that it includes uh, a little bit of something on recognition of qualifications, um, and a little bit of something uh, on the working holiday visa program for uh, young British people now I very much agree that young is under 35. That works for me very well. I hope I look forward to that being expanded to 40 in a few years. This agreement will let them continue to stay in Australia for three years, working, uh, working, and without having to do six months of labour on an Australian rural property, which had been the rule before for the second year. So that's what we know. That's what we know about the deal uh, itself. We also know what the the two sides are obviously talking it up. The UK government is simultaneously trying to run several messages. Uh, It is arguing that this will decrease prices for consumers while in fact not hurting any UK producers and doing very little. Uh, Those are two fairly contradictory messages because of course if If a free trade agreement, if the elimination of tariffs significantly reduces prices, then it hurts your producers. It's just a a binary. The far more likely outcome is, of course, it'll do neither. Uh, Australia has lucrative markets in its own region. Australia has supply side constraints that stop it just producing twice as much agriculture just because the tariffs aren't there. Um, And Australia hasn't typically utilised even all of the quotas it has uh, into the UK now. So uh, in the UK, the debate is very, very passionate and fiery. Farmers are warning of an existential threat and they're talking about the undermining of UK standards. Um, I think on this deal alone, most of the analysis so far says Australia is unlikely to wipe out Scotch, Welsh, English, or Northern Irish agriculture. And it's unlikely this deal actually erodes UK standards. But a, lo- a lot of those of us watching from outside have kind of thought two steps ahead in the chess game, I guess, and said that once you've given Australia a huge agricultural producer effectively complete elimination of tariffs and quotas, how are you going to explain to other potential trading partners that might, have, might pose a bigger threat? To your agricultural producers, that they are not going to receive the same treatment, and here I am talking about the U.S., but I'm also talking about countries like Brazil, Argentina.
1: Sam, what do you think?
2: If the UK couldn't do a trade agreement with Australia, it's going to struggle to do one with anyone. So it sort of tells us—it tells us something about the UK's global Britain agenda. It tells us that the UK was certainly in a hurry to get it done quickly, and that we would agree to duty and quota free trade, something the Australians certainly were expecting. And it tells us that the UK is really hoping to get CPTPP done because it's getting people on side who are already part of the membership. But it doesn't necessarily tell us that the UK is then going to go on a strike trade agreement with Australia, uh, with India, with the US, with Mercosur, because those are much bigger economies with much more difficult and more challenging issues uh, to deal with. So anyone who's expressing too strong an opinion on this is probably overstating things. My view is fine, good. I don't see it being a, a being a sort of a bad thing. I think it's probably a net positive and uh, we should just treat it as that and, yeah. and, and calm down a little bit.
1: Anna, when we finally do get the text, what are you going to be looking out for? What big questions will you have?
4: Yeah, so I'll have a couple. Um, and... As ever with these texts, you're only so good at reading them as um, you are at talking to the officials that put them together in terms of working out what's a win, what's not a win, because you need to match it up against what people were asking for and what they got. And I think the age 35 is really interesting that we've been discussing. I have heard from numerous sources that the, our age being asked for was 40. So I think that's an interesting point to consider when you think about OK, Australia will be absolutely thrilled with what it achieved in agriculture in this deal, irrespective of whether or not in reality those, those quotas would ever be filled, it's about achieving market access and they've achieved phenomenal market access. The UK, on the other hand, hasn't quite achieved what it was hoping to in terms of 40. So rather than it getting an you know, a relatively unprecedented offer in terms of the age for that working arrangement, It's had something that is comparable with what some other trading partners have. So I think in in that regard, there's a lot more to come out here. What I'll also be looking for on services, how does this measure up to other state-of-the-art services deal like Singapore, Australia? Are we going to go beyond that in terms of services market access? Thinking again about Northern Ireland and whether or not it can fully benefit from some of what the UK could achieve in its independent trade policy. A lot of that will be about services because um, Northern Ireland remains in the EU's market for goods, but in terms of some of the benefits that could be achieved, you know, there could be some wins for Northern Ireland in terms of service market access. Now, obviously, I'm setting that against the context of We have lost market access by leaving the EU. I'm not trying to compare these two things. I'm trying to sort of start from a state of play where we are right now in the post-Brexit reality we have. Um, So that will be absolutely huge, I think, in terms of determining whether or not there have been wins. And I think one of the most concerning things is the pace at which the UK is trying to achieve these deals make the complexity of much of services negotiations extremely challenging. Um, and it makes engagement with business and stakeholders extremely challenging. So I think in terms of measuring up against what you know, what the UK had hoped for, I just hope I can establish enough from officials that they were clear in what they should have been aiming at to start with, that I can actually read this deal and work out whether or not there are UK wins.
1: I think we should wrap up here. In summary, the business of trade is just as complicated and just as political as it ever was. And a huge thanks to Dimitri Grzabinski, Anna Isaac, and Sam Lowe. Do catch them on Twitch every other Monday evening explaining trade. That's at 7.30 p.m. British time every other Monday. We'll tweet out a link. It's a fun show.
0: Huge thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes.
1: And I'm at Chad Bowne.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks.